Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today I want to talk about my favorite essay from Slate Star Codex by Scott Alexander. And this essay is Meditations on Moloch, which he wrote in 2014. What is Moloch? Well, Moloch is the answer to the question of why do so many things suck? Mankind can achieve such greatness, and yet we often fail. More specifically, I think what, what Moloch is is the bad things that result from competition. And Moloch is, is not just caused by capitalism, but really any type of competition, even competition among socialist bureaucrats. Let me give you some examples of Moloch, and these are mostly taken from Scott's essay, although I, I sort of put my own, I'll put my own spin on them. So first example is the prisoner's dilemma. So let's imagine that you know, we have an ancient city-state is about to go to war with another city-state. And just before the troops are going to leave the city, the demon Moloch appears and says, sacrifice 10 healthy loved children to me, and I'll give all of your troops plus 7 killing power. And they'll take away seven from the killing power of your enemy. You think about it, and you're like, yeah, you certainly don't want to kill ten of your own children. But, you know, if you lose the war, it's going to be far worse than losing just seven children, and this could really make a difference. So you're about to say yes when Moloch says, oh, you know, I don't really favor your city at all. I want to play fair, so I'm making this exact same offer to the other city at this very moment. So what that means is Moloch is saying to both cities, hey, if you sacrifice 10 loved children, I'll give plus 7 to you and take away plus 7 from the other side, which, of course, if both accept, you come out even except for the 20 dead kids. But, of course, both cities will probably accept because if the other city accepts and you don't, they have a major advantage. So if they're going to accept, you want to. But if they don't accept, then if you do accept, you get a big advantage. So if the other city accepts, you want to accept Moloch's offer. And if they don't accept, you want to accept Moloch's offer. So that means you want to accept the offer no matter what. So if you're rational, you'll accept. Both cities will accept, thinking the other city will and thinking that they gain no advantage. They wish Moloch hasn't, hadn't shown up. But knowing what Moloch is doing and being rational doesn't allow you to escape his grasp. This is the, the problem. Moloch is not people being stupid. Moloch is not someone saying, oh, I'll never get into a car accident, so why should I wear a seatbelt? Or, yeah, taking math, eh, that's not really, I, I, can, I can stop anytime. Moloch is not individual stupidity. Moloch is rational, self-interested people, not evil people necessarily, but rational people doing what's in their own best interests and, and thereby making everyone worse off. Another example of Moloch is the, the traditional tragedy of the commons problem. So um, imagine that there's some, some land and you know we're, we're in a small village and you know everyone wants to use this, this land. Let's say grass grows in this land to feed our cows. What'll happen if we all just put our cows in the land is that we'll overgraze the land and then you know, next season the grass won't come back. Um, knowing this, however, doesn't necessarily help you solve the problem. If you can't 
coordinate, then it's in everyone's individual interest to let their cows graze on the land. Because if, well, no one else does, I'll just put my cows on, it won't do any harm. And if everyone else does, well, the grass isn't coming back next year anyway, so I might as well get whatever grass I can now. So Moloch can be beaten if you can coordinate, if the two city-states could somehow trust each other and agree not to coordinate, to, to not accept his offer, you could beat Moloch, but that's tough. Similarly, it might be tough to not, you know, to use up all of the commons. Another example of Moloch is the Malthusian trap. The Malthusian trap is saying, if there's not a check on population growth, on human population growth, at least before modern birth control and abortion, the population's going to grow. And the population will keep growing until you, you can't feed everyone, and then starvation will again be a check. So, you know, if you, you think, you know, before the, the modern era, if there was a population that was doing well, everyone had plenty of food, you'd say, okay, things are going well now, but eventually you're doomed because things are going well, so probably you're going to have a lot of kids. And these kids will have a lot of kids. Your population is going to grow until you can't feed everybody. So every population was either facing something was killing a lot of them, maybe war, disease, or starvation, or they're doing well, but their population is growing, and so eventually they're, they're in trouble. Um, Another example of, of Moloch is, is an arms race. Or imagine there's two cities near each other, and they, you know, ancient city-states, so they, they both invest a lot in, in, in the military. They don't really want to fight the other city, but they're like, well, gee, if, you know, we'd certainly be willing to conquer them if it was easy, and they'd be willing to conquer us if it was easy. So they have their men do a lot of training. They devote more resources to making weapons than to you know, making farm equipment. And, you know, the more the other city arms itself, the more you want to. And so they both end up devoting a lot of their resources to the military. And, you know, maybe they'd be just as well off if neither devoted a lot of resources to the military. But given what the other person's going to do, you're going to do it as well. And this, of course, often happens throughout history that a lot of countries, they devote so much resources to their military, they're doing it because other people are doing it. But if other people are doing it, you're doing it as well. Another example of Moloch is educational signaling. So the, the signaling theory of college is that you know, college doesn't so much give you abilities as prove you have them. So graduating from a good college you know, proves that you're reasonably intelligent, you're reasonably hardworking, and you're, you're enough of a conformist to be able to figure out what the professor wants, right? I mean, you, you, can, you can be creative, but only in ways the professor considers good. So under the signaling theory of colleges, companies would say, might realize, you know, people don't really learn useful stuff in colleges. So I, we don't care if you, you know, you major in a field that doesn't relate to what you'll be doing at our job. But they, they show they're worthy. They show they have these good skills. But now if you accept that colleges to signaling, people, or a lot of colleges signaling, people are going to college to prove they have these abilities, but college is really expensive and time-consuming, and it's kind of a waste. So our whole civilization might be better off if, let's say, we reduce college from four years to two years. But no individual could could do that, right? If you you know if you want a high-status job, if you say, well, I'm just going to go to a two-year college, even though I could do well at a four-year college, an employer might rationally say, oh, I bet you really did that because you couldn't handle four years. 
So we're, we're kind of stuck in this signaling trap where, you know, it's rational for an individual to go to college for four years, spend a lot of time and a lot of money, even though it would be better off if everyone just went to college for two years. Um, getting into college, there's this in, enormous problem. You know, getting into an elite college in the United States, you not only have to do well in your courses now, but you also have to do the right extracurricular activities and prove you care about other people. I was talking with my son, and he's sort of, he's 13 now, but, you know, he knows a bit about effective altruism, and he's like, well, shouldn't the way I, I prove that I care about other people be just to give my allowance money to the Against Malaria Foundation, right? And I'm like, oh, then that, that'll never work. You, you can't put on your application for college. I donated money to the, you know, to the Against Malaria Foundation, and that was more efficient than my working at a soup kitchen or working at an animal shelter. Like, no, no, they, they'll, the college would, would never buy just you know, donating money to a charity as showing that you're a good enough person to get in, even though that's probably a lot better. So kids going to college, they have to show that they're doing good, and that is more important than actually doing good. And of course, it's you know, it, it's hard for high school students to have a meaningfully positive impact on the world if you're not allowing them just to give money to people who are actually good at making the world a better place. So, you know, this is the the system we're in. Of course, college students have to also, or high school students have to worry about getting good grades. So you can't say, gee, you know, my high school teacher cares about this extra credit assignment and, and it would help me, but, you know, I don't think I would learn a lot, so I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to focus on learning rather than getting good grades. No, no, that, that's a really bad strategy for getting into college. Another example of Moloch is bad incentives in science. Right? To, to do well in science, you, you need to get articles published. So you need to focus on what journals care about. Unfortunately, that can be different from doing something that's you know, going to make mankind better off because we, we, you know, you, you've come up with an important result. So there are, for example, a lot of statistical games you can play to make your result seem more important than it really is. Unfortunately, the people willing to play these games will have will do better at advancing their career. And so they'll have an advantage. So not playing these games puts you at a disadvantage. So then you assume everyone's playing these games, which of course can give us some, you know, very, very bad results. So this is Moloch. Moloch is when we compete, what bad things result. To, to generalize, if we compete to try to do really well on criteria X, we're going to sacrifice other things that are important, right? If you optimize for X, but you also care about Y, but somehow the system just looks at X, Y will, will, will fall aside. Another problem is that when you, you, know, you try to achieve X, if you're hurting other people but not you, you might be willing to do that. And the people who are most willing to harm others will have the biggest advantage and, and, and will take over. So let me now turn to Moloch and, and the future. I think the biggest problem Moloch poses for us in the future is with unfriendly artificial general intelligence. So I, I've talked before how I, I think that artificial general intelligence is a really good chance of destroying our, our civilization. Now, fortunately, a lot of people 
are properly worried about artificial general intelligence and recognize that it's a risk. But still, I think Moloch is going to stop us from coordinating to achieve safe artificial general intelligence. So let me give you an analogy. Let's imagine that there is a mine and you are everyone's mining mithril. So this will be a Lord of the Rings analogy. But you know that if you dig deep enough, you're going to awake a, a Balrog and this horrible monster that will destroy your civilization, let's say. But if you don't dig that in deep enough, then you'll, you'll get the mithril and that will make you really strong and really powerful. Now, should you dig the mithril? Well, let's say you say, look, I, I'm worried about the Balrog and I'm, I'm concerned about destroying my civilization, so maybe I shouldn't dig. But that's not a consequentialist position because you'd have to say, if I don't dig, someone else will. So the marginal effect of my digging on the chance of the Balrog arising might actually be zero. So if I dig, I get the mithril. Maybe I can use it for a good purpose. If I don't dig, well, it's not that I've increased the chance of our civilization surviving because someone else will just get that. So you can imagine the same from a position of an AGI researcher who might say, you know what, yeah, researching AGI is really dangerous, but if I don't do it, you know, someone else will just get my job. So I might as well if that's what bring me the most, you know, most enjoyment. A company might say the same thing. Look, look, we're, you know, we found this new application for AI and yeah, maybe there's a chance we'll, we'll, we'll go a little too far and there'll be this intelligence explosion and the AI will kill us. But you know what, if it's that easy for an AI to turn into an artificial general intelligence and destroy mankind, then we're doomed. Right? So a company like Google might say, yeah, yeah, there is a chance that maybe this, this algorithm, you know, maybe figuring out how to cause an AGI to make music that people really like. I imagine there's lots of companies working on that. So we say, yeah, there's a chance that, that that's enough, that that will create an AGI that will eventually destroy the world. But there, if, if that's true, we're doomed no matter what. Someone is going to do that. So we, we probably shouldn't let that bother us because if we, you know, if we don't develop, if we, we're capable of creating an AI that can create music that people really like, and this is worth billions of dollars if it's safe, well, if we do it and it's safe, we get the billions. If we don't do it and it's safe, well, we've just lost out. Now, if it's unsafe, yeah, we'll destroy the world, but... If we do it, but if we don't do it, you know, the next group is just a few months behind us. So it really, there's not that not that big a deal. We're, we're doomed anyway. So you know, if there's if there was one person deciding on the speed that w which we develop AI, that person would have an incentive to say, okay, let's you know, let's go slow. If I think AI is really risky, I'll go slow. But if there's lots of people working on AI, and they know that there's lots of people working on it, everyone will say, look. Even if I'm worried, it's not worth it for me to go slow because then other people will go faster and they'll develop it. And this, of course, applies to militaries as well. The United States military might say, yeah, you know, developing, you know, AI to use on a battlefield, this could go really badly. But man, other countries are doing it. So if it's deadly, we're doomed. And if it's not deadly, we don't develop it. You know, we'll be ellipsed as a power by, say, China. So it's in our interest to develop it. And of course it gets even worse when you take into account that people vary in how afraid they are of AI. So apparently 
Um, Elon Musk is afraid of AI from what he said, while the, the Mark Zuckerberg, the guy who runs Facebook, isn't. So this just means that Zuckerberg would, you know, have an incentive to invest a lot in AI, and Musk will say, well, gee, you know, if it's going to turn out badly, well, Facebook will eventually destroy the universe, so I might as well invest it anyway, so I can get some of the profit if it turns out not to be too dangerous. Uh, so Moloch might end up destroying us through causing us not to take proper precautions with AGI, and this applies even if most or all of us even accept that AGI is really, really dangerous. Now let's turn to performance-enhancing drugs. We already have them in sports where a lot of athletes are taking steroids, and there's kind of a prisoner's dilemma going on where you'll say, gee, you know, if everyone else is taking steroids, well, I, I need you to compete, and if no one else is, well, I get a huge advantage if I take them, and it's definitely worth the, the health risks. So we, we have, you know, um, whole, uh, professions where everyone is probably taking steroids. Uh, this is applying, I think, to some extent with Adderall. Um, I, I used to take Adderall, and the effect with me is I, I needed less sleep, and I found my work more interesting, and I think my memory was better too. So these are... You know, these are great things if you're trying to study, trying to get good grades. Um, I, from what I've read, I mean, Adderall can really improve the performance of a lot of high school students. Well, given how high the stakes are of getting into a top college so you can signal good qualities about you, it, it makes sense for, you know, a lot of rational high school students to take Adderall. If Adderall is the difference between getting into an elite college or a non-elite college, it, it might be worth it. But recall, if it's mostly just signaling, you're kind of giving a false signal, right? Because you're taking an amphetamine to artificially raise your ability. And it's not the kind of thing you probably want to take your whole life. It is speed. It's, it's probably you know, not healthy to be on it your whole life. So you're giving a false signal, but it's still in your interest. You know, we, we can imagine this continuing with, with new drugs where, you know, if you're rewarded for doing something, but that thing is imperfectly measured. You can take a drug to improve your performance. Even if that drug hurts you, it's going to be worth doing. And so it, it might make a lot of people worse off. So I imagine there's a lot of lawyers and investment bankers who are competing to get promotions who are taking modafinil so they don't need to sleep as much. They're taking Adderall so they could handle their probably very boring jobs. And they're likely to have an advantage and to win their competition. We'll probably get new drugs, and these drugs will improve performance even more. But what if there's even worse side effects? Well, all these competitions might end up being won by people who are willing to significantly sacrifice their health. Uh, another way I, I think Moloch might end up playing a big role in who the parties in the United States nominate for president. I think our next election, the, the if Donald Trump chooses not to run for re-election, it could be Oprah on the Democratic side and, and the, the actor the, goes by the name of The Rock on, on the Republican side. Donald Trump's victory has shown that charisma, I know a lot of you hate Trump, but he's very charismatic to a lot of Americans. There's evidence that he had a, you know, a, a top TV show, The Apprentice, for quite a while. So charisma is really important. And what if both the Democrat and Republicans realize, you know what, 
the most important thing for getting a candidate elected is how much charisma they have because a lot of voters just don't don't go beyond that so then you'll say to yourself you know with someone like like oprah it's like well yeah she doesn't seem to have any you know the many qualifications for being president. She probably wouldn't be dangerous. She wouldn't invade countries or start a dictatorship. But she she overwhelming with charisma. And yeah, she's certainly not anyone's first choice for running the country. But gosh, we, we want to win. We're con- let's say we're, we're confident she would accept our values. She would appoint people we like to the courts and to her cabinet. So it's in our interest to appoint her and the Republicans figure the same thing. And if, think about it, if, let's say that 20% of voters only go by charisma and 80% use more rational criteria. Well, it would make sense for each party just to pick the most charismatic person who would, you know, be pretty good at appointing people that support their values. Because you'd say, look, even though most Americans would pick a candidate based on competence, these 20% aren't reachable through appeals to competence, just through charisma. So to win them, we really have to pick the most charismatic person. And the 80%, the, you know, the rest of the people in our party will understand this. We can say, yeah, Oprah or The Rock, they're clearly not the most qualified to be chief executive, but look, we really want to win. So you all should be practical enough to say, yes, this is the person. Let's go for the best actor, the best person, the person who has the best television presence. And I think we might move to an equilibrium where, where of course, you, you do this, where both sides say, look, if we don't pick the most charismatic person who we're confident will be loyal to us, we're at a huge disadvantage. So if you care just about charisma, yeah, you'll be happy with Oprah or The Rock. But if you care about practical results, that's who you should want. You should prefer Oprah over Elizabeth Warren because she's so much more charisma and she's so much more likely to win. So if you're practical-oriented or charisma-oriented, you should prefer you know, the actor. And that's what I think might end up happening. All right, let's now turn to the future of the Malthusian trap. So I think we're likely to hit the Malthusian trap again. So if you look at Earth's population, right, there's a lot of countries where, you know, people aren't having that many kids. But there are some groups where people are having a huge number of kids. So the the Amish, of course, um, some some members of the Jewish community, some people in North Africa where, you know, you, you want to have seven or eight kids. Just going by the math, if most people are having between, you know, one and three kids, but some population groups are having like seven or eight kids, the population groups that are having a lot of kids, they'll eventually dominate the population, assuming the desire to have children is genetically transmitted. And probably, I mean, most things are genetically transmitted. So, you know, the amount of kids you have is, is determined by, you know, a combination of given the environment you, you're in, what do your genes tell you of how many kids you want to have? And in the modern world, a lot of people are saying, you know, in the United States, well, given the you know, environment I'm in, I want to have one or two kids. But, you know, the Amish are saying, no, given the environment we're in, we want to have seven or eight. Well, that means eventually, you know, the Amish are going to dominate. Eventually, the, you know, everyone will be Amish. Or ever, you know, or there'll be parts of other groups where people want to have a lot of kids. So, I think eventually, you know, it, even if the world population started to decline, if there are subpopulations that are having a huge number of kids, 
If their kids are also going to want to have a huge number of kids, they, they share this trade, they'll eventually take over. And I think we're, we're headed for that. Now, we, we have this might not this might take a, a while. You know, advances in gene editing means we're probably going to get much better at growing food. But eventually, given exponential population growth, you know, there won't be enough atoms in the universe to, so that everyone could be fed. So I think we're headed towards the Malthusian trap if there isn't some kind of dictator or, or if there isn't some kind of population crash. So right now we might live in what's been called dream time where we, you know, if you're at least in the richest billion people in the world, you've got plenty of food, you can have a bunch of kids and not worry about them starving to death. But this is probably limited. Eventually Moloch's gonna win. People will be having so many kids that no matter what our technology, we won't be able to feed everyone. Um, starvation will be a check on population growth, or we'll need some kind of dictator to say, no, 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 we're going to restrict how many kids you have. Let's now turn to genetics. I, I think pretty soon parents are going to be able to pick the genes of their children. Now, right now, of course, you play a massive role in what genes your kids have when you pick your mate. But in the future, technologies like CRISPR might allow you to you know, edit the embryos of your future children and decide what genes they get. And this, this is going to do a lot of wonderful things. Parents are almost certainly going to not want their kid to be prone to get cancer, to be blind, prone to depression, you know, to be unhealthy in lots of ways. Probably no one's going to want their kid to be less intelligent than they are. So there's a lot of good things that are going to come out of this. But because of Moloch, there's also some bad things. So one of the things you're going to want is you're going to want your kid to be attractive, right? You, you know, boy, you want your kid to be able to have a lot of success in picking a mate. Well, what we consider attractive is probably determined by evolutionary psychology and, and goes back to what hunter-gatherers considered to be attractive in a mate. So, you know, men might want their mate to have large breasts. Uh, women might want their 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 mates to you know be very tall and strong and you know the alpha male types. So we're gonna be selecting the genes for our kids to some extent to optimize for what our hunter-gatherer ancestors considered attractive. And this is sort of a trap, right? It'd be hard for parents to break out of this if you could say, gee, I, I don't want to do that. I, I want to create my kid so my kid would be very attractive to somebody who had rational preferences today. So someone who said, you know, math ability is certainly more important than, you know, coming across like a, a, a confident caveman. We say, well, no, but other people aren't going to make that change. So why, why should I? You know, how can, I can't do that, right? So you're, when, when selecting what you want your kid to be, you have to take into account what other people are doing. And since you know, other people are unlikely to change the preferences of their kids, you know, to match what you want, you're, you're kind of stuck with accepting, you know, what other people are going to consider attractive. Then the next problem, and this is even worse, is what do you do about picking your children's desire to spread their genes? So, you know, how many kids do you want your kid to have? Let's say we're probably going to find out there's a big genetic component to that. And you'll say, well, I, I want some grandchildren. So I say, well, maybe most people say, well, I want my kid to have two or three children. I'll, I'll try to edit that in their genes. You know, most people would want their kid to have some kids. 
But there are going to be a few people who say, no, I want lots of grandchildren. I want my kid to have seven or eight kids. Well, what happens over the generations, right? Well, the people who want their children to have lots of children will end up doing a better job in terms of Darwinian games, and they'll have a lot of children, and they'll do a better job spreading their genes. But that means they'll come to dominate future generations. And of course, someone who wants to have seven, his kid to have seven kids, they won't spread their genes to as much as someone who has their kid, who you know, who has a kid who wants to have ten kids. And of course, what about the extreme where you, someone creates an embryo and this embryo has a desire to maximize the spread of his genes? That person will have the most children. But this gets really bad because imagine what it would mean if all you cared about was maximizing the spread of your genes. You, you know, art, math, you might learn it, but only for instrumental reasons. I'll learn art so I can better convince people, other people to like me. I'll learn, learn math so I can earn a lot of money to support kids. But these would all be intermediate goals. Your, your final goal would be only to care about maximizing the spread of your genes. But almost tautologically, you'll do better than other people who don't have this goal. So I think once you can pick your genes, we might end up at a point where, right, eventually the people who want to who have kids who want to have more kids they'll come to dominate but then the people who want to have even more kids than that and eventually you know that'll keep increasing the number of kids you want to have keep increasing until eventually we get to people who only care about maximizing the spread of your genes now it gets really sad when they become dominant when everyone only cares about maximizing the spread of your genes then you don't even try with art. You don't even try with things that just are only valuable for spreading your genes. You just become basically pure replicators. I mean, I guess not pure replicators. You have to care about science and all that and health, but you only do things just for the purpose of spreading your genes when you know only other people only care about that as well. So we end up with this probably horrible world where people are very good at producing children. They've maximized how much food they can produce. And that's all that matters to them. And I don't see a way around this, assuming humanity continues and we don't, you know, we don't have some kind of singularity where the robots take over or we you know, become software or we have a dictator, a singleton that tells us what to do. I think eventually the, the Darwinian advantage will go to people who say, all I care about is spreading my genes. And that's my entire utility function. That's my entire goal. Eventually, they dominate, and if something doesn't stop them, they'll colonize the universe. Uh, well, thank you very much for listening to me today. Goodbye.